History happened everywhere. The verdict. This is our after show podcast where we look back at the most recent episode, episode 70, Green in Papua New Guinea in the 21st century. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and check it out, or else there will be spoilers ahead. Those bloody birds. What are they doing? They're living in my eaves. Well, fumigate it. Hello, my name is Ryan Weir, and I'm here in the HHE studio with the bush to my weed. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. I am a full bush, Ryan. (laughs) You might need to get that shaved. Trimmed, maybe, a little. And we are joined, as ever, by the dark defender of the damned. It's the judge himself. It's Mr. Paul Dursley. I don't defend the damned. I execute them. (laughs) (laughs) Does the damning, if anything, let's be honest. (laughs) Fair. Now, Peter, I was trekking through the swamps of Papua New Guinea this week and found my brains eaten by cannibals, which explains why I've forgotten everything you told me about during the episode. So would you mind reminding me in, let's say, I don't know, 60 seconds? I don't mind at all. When would you like me to do that? Do it now! I took us to the South Pacific to the exotic and very green nation of Papua New Guinea. There we discovered one of the largest rainforests on one of the largest islands in the world. We learned that the country was home to over 800 different languages as well as a few species of poisonous bird. We met the symbol of the island, the beautiful bird of paradise, whose beauty almost caused its doom in the plume boom, when they were very heavily hunted for hats. We also had a fascinating conversation with Don Kulik, the anthropologist who trekked deep into the Papua New Guinean jungle to live with a tribe whose language was dying out. And he described some of his experiences that left us in equal parts green around the gills when he described the local cuisine and green with envy at his incredible adventure. That was last week's episode done Summarised nicely, nice one son Now we're over to a young Dursley Who's gonna tell you what he thought of me He'll take you apart without any care He's the lovely Paul Dursley The lovely Paul Dursley Yes, I remember now. The plume boom doom. And what a vivid depiction of Papua New Guinean greenness it was. Well, it checked all my boxes, Peter. It left me wanting for nothing. But my opinion matters naught. Because we are here today for the opinion of just one man, Judge Dursley. So, Paul, before we convene the court and receive your final ruling, please give us your first impressions of episode 70. It was an interesting portrayal of an interesting country. By an interesting presenter. Hurrah! I never said an interesting presenter. (laughs) I think green was a pretty broad subject to cover off, though. I can only thank myself for that, for having the cunning to choose a colour that was really broad and variously metaphorical. (laughs) You should teach Ryan a thing or two about wild cards, shouldn't you? Yeah, this is the man who chose Yemen as his country. (laughs) And it was an interesting episode. It really was. It was. (laughs) But I've got a strong feeling there's a good grade in this one for you, Peter. Well, let's see. That being said, though, Peter... I have received an audio message from a listener and I want to play it for you and get your response if that's okay. All right, go ahead. Hi, Pete. I'm just wondering how come Papua New Guinea is counted as an island and Greenland is counted as an island, but Australia isn't? Because surely that would be then be the first or the second biggest island in the world. Love the show. Well, that's actually a really interesting question because even as I was saying it in the podcast, my brain was going... 
surely that Australia is a big island too. And I actually looked this up afterwards because I had a massive crisis of confidence. And uh, it turns out that it, traditionally Australia is considered a continent and therefore not doesn't count on the mid, the size of islands uh equally other continents such as north and south america combined you could argue have a watery border and constitute an island so australia is generally considered a continent and therefore doesn't feature in the biggest island lists if that's the case what's the difference between australia the continent and australasia the continent i thought australia was a country in australasia well australia is a country isn't it Australasia is a, I think, an unofficial term for the landmass and islands around Australia in the southwestern part of the Pacific. And Oceania is that plus the rest of the Pacific. Right. Is Pete right then that it isn't an island or it is an island It's as in that it's a country? It's not. A, is it a continent? I'm so confused. It's a continental landmass, as is Afro-Eurasia. It's one of those things where it's a relatively artificial distinction, because if you just mean what's the biggest piece of land with sea around it, then all of Africa, Asia and Europe constitutes one island, you could argue. So it's kind of an artificial line in the first place, isn't it? Yeah, that's a good point. Well, look, I hope that answers your question. I also think it may be to do with geological cratons, but Mm. I'm not sure. Nor am I, but I don't know what a geological craton is. It's a piece of the Earth's surface that's been around for a very long time. A craton? And quite often when you see the sort of continents move all around, a lot of the bits of those are actually cratons and they're always there. They, they sort of never never disappear, but they just move around. Whereas some other bits aren't cratons and, you know, the land comes up and comes down based on, I don't know, water level or subduction, etc. So when you make cocoa and there's always that island of cocoa that won't dissolve in the milk, is that a craton? Uh, I thought that's the toast you put in a soup. Oh, no, wait, that's a crouton. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I, I think your craton is almost exactly the opposite of what it is, because it's an upthrust of the magma that causes the cratons to sort of float and stay there. I'm calling my next band Upthrust of Magma. Craton Upthrust, I think, is better. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Paul, what did you think about the episode? Was there anything in particular that stood out to you? Uh, yes, there was one thing that particularly stood out to me, which was the rather horrible nature of the food, sort of congealed snot or something. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of a starchy residue that uh, poor old Don was forced to eat every day. Yeah, it was made out of the inside of a tree and apparently it took basically all day to make. And your end result was, uh, as described by Don, a slime, which he found very difficult to get used to. And from his description, I can't say I blame him. So. Is it one of those that they ferment in the mouth? There are some of those sort of things that they ferment in mouth and then spit it out and then other people eat it. Fermented all day in the mouth sounds disgusting. Extra disgusting. <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think this one was fermented. Okay, okay. Well that that that's sort of something. Yeah, but the way he described swallowing it while still chewing it, that was not cool. It didn't sound great, did it? Uh, no. not, to, not to our palate, I think we could say quite comfortably. I did some research though, Pete, and there is a tribe in Papua New Guinea, the Qatari tribe. I think they were one of the last tribes to be found, mainly because they live like 30 metres up in tree houses. Sounds great. Uh, yeah, it's supposed to keep them away from the dangerous animals that are on the 
forest floor. But they hunt in the forest as well. And they eat sort of things like, I think, coconut beetles or the, the larvae of coconut beetles. Sort of wrap them up in ferns and cook them. What was that tribe called again? Ewoks. <laughs> <laughs> nub nub. Well, Don Kulik also describes, as well as the delicious slime that he was offered, that there was quite a variety of kind of grubs and worms as part of the diet, which I guess you live in the jungle, you eat what you have available, don't you? There's not a Tesco around the corner, is there? Yeah, and I'm sure it tastes fine if you're used to it. Yeah, I wonder if people who are from Papua New Guinea in these tribes, I assume some of them end up going to Australia and living as a, I don't know, accountant in Sydney. I wonder if they're sitting there going, oh, I could really do a grub right now, the taste of home and the taste of childhood. Yeah, and yet lo- they're sitting there flavor. eating packet of crisps going, this is rubbish. <laughs> I'll stick with a packet of crisps, please. Why not both? That's all I'm saying. It's not flavoured walkers. You heard it here first. So, Ryan, you talked about the tree people. I will see your tree people and raise you crocodile people. Oh, they live in crocodiles? No, no. They're a tribe called the Chambri tribe. They live on the Sipik River. They're known as the crocodile men of Papua New Guinea. And they have a, oftentimes they have a sort of totemic relationship in these tribes, don't they? We've come across this before. And they have a totemic relationship with the crocodile. The big buds with the crocodile, they, they try and sort of channel the spirit of the crocodile. And they have a rite of passage. And I've, I read that it, go, it can occur between the age of 11 and 30. So I guess you could become another 29-year-old child. I suppose that's uh, something we all experience today. But I can understand why you might wait to your 30 to make this transition because in order to do it what they do is they use scarification basically to create the kind of look of crocodile scales and the marks of crocodile teeth and that literally hundreds of really big scars so they they have this special ritual they sit in a tribal men's house i guess for up to six weeks to prepare for this ritual where they get sliced hundreds of times in this pattern to kind of evoke the crocodile and then they rub leaves and herbs and things into the scars so the scars are like a raised prominent bump they're not trying to minimize the scars the scarring is the point and uh, the end result is you get this really elaborate row of scarring all the way down the back and the front of these people it's really incredible to look at and then then that way you you look like the crocodile and then you become a kind of tribal leader it's a rite of passage so you're respected and that's all you need to do Ryan, is have several hundred scars in, attached onto your body so several hundred paper cuts and i'm i'm a crocodile man worse, worse than paper cuts get a paper cut rub some mud in it that's the key i guess it must be effective though Imagine wandering through the forest and stumbling across a crocodile man. Mm. You'd be nervous. Apparently, actually, I did read one story where the crocodile guy was, I, I think he was guiding some Europeans or something, and they were stopped by another tribe of people and he took his shirt off and they're like, oh, it's a crocodile man of the Seapick River. We'll be friends with him instead of uh, robbing him, beating him as they, I think they were planning to do. Wow. I mean, we have forms of body modification, don't we, in the West, where people will insert bits of metal or cut bits of the skin and you know make holes in the body and all that sort of stuff. I guess it's not vastly different than that except that this is what religious or like you say totemic spiritual i think more than religious but i guess it's a fine line in itself but yeah it's a it's it's a life transition thing right it expresses your journey into manhood and frankly if you can tolerate the the experience then you deserve to be called a man i would say what about you paul if you had to pick an animal that you had to scarificate yourself for what would it be frog 
Um, a, a beluga whale. <laughs> I thought you were going to go for the ant, just a little, little one little dot. Yes, my ant scar. <laughs> I went for I went for something that was very smooth. <laughs> I have all the bumps of a beluga whale, <laughs> just one blowhole in the back. <laughs> with, with the white skin and blubber, I think I'm halfway there, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Your spirit animal is the beluga. <laughs> So, Peter, just talking about crocodiles and animals in general, I was surprised that we really only covered the bird of paradise in terms of green animals in Papua New Guinea, because I would have thought they'd be, as you said, crocodiles, frogs, lizards, things that are green that live in the forest. I I guess it's not 21st century, so perhaps that's why you skipped past it. But I was just curious why we didn't talk about those things. Well, I think it was because essentially I wanted to share the most interesting things I could find. And there, there was a lot. I did think for a while in the early stages, I was looking at lots of animals and that sort of nature talk. But when I came across Don's story, it was so fascinating and it occurred in the book was published in the 21st century that it hit the brief for me a little bit more closely and I figured that the nature stuff if we come back to Papua New Guinea probably we could find a way of fitting it in and coming back to it. Well look you talked about green as a metaphor so I did a little bit more research about that and in in relation to sort of newness and immaturity I, I saw that the etymology of it the origins of it uh, come from the middle ages and that's where people were compared to unripe fruit or fresh leaves. Uh, But Green's association with envy and jealousy is a little bit different. This apparently originated in ancient Greece, where medics at the time thought that the body had four humours, four bodily fluids that were believed to have influence over a person's health. Too much blood, and you might be too excitable and energetic. Too little phlegm, and it might explain why you're tired all the time. So obviously they're never tired in Papua New Guinea, all that phlegm they drink. (laughs) Well, people considered to be in an excess of envy were said to have an excess of bile, specifically yellow bile, the fluid that's produced by the liver and it helps with digesting food. And while it's called yellow bile, in reality, if you actually look at it, it's actually greenish yellow in colour. And that might explain why some said that, you know, to have too much yellow bile would give the complexion of sort of a greenish hue. But green with envy as a phrase actually originated from William Shakespeare. He used it in his play Othello. Iago warns of the dangers of envy, saying, Oh, beware, my lord of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. Yeah, but green for envy is common across most languages, but there are some outliers. In Hungary, it's yellow for envy. In Ukraine and other Slavic cultures, they use white envy to mean that you're happy for other people, but wish you had what they have. And black envy, meaning that if you don't have it, no one else should. Uh, Other uses for colour in language, like in Spain, uh, Germany and the Philippines, they use green-minded to talk about people that can't stop thinking about sex. They have green movies referring to pornographic films. Green? Green, yeah. We have like blue, don't we, Yeah. in the UK? And in Spanish, un veo verde, Pete, means dirty old man. That's why I keep hearing that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Why why are dirty old men green? I don't understand. I don't know. In China, wearing a green hat means that you're cuckolded. (laughs) 
And you'd, what, you'd choose to wear a green hat? Yeah, just to wear a green hat. There's someone out there, manufacturer of green hats, going, I don't know why these aren't selling. <laughs> <laughs> and in America, of course, green refers to money. Because in 1861, when the first paper banknotes were produced, the back of the note was printed in a green ink, and that was to prevent people from photographing it and printing their own, because at the time, only black and white photos were available. So it literally was green on the back? Yeah, literally, green bags. Yeah, that's where it came from. Ah. So there you go. That's a lot of green stuff. Nice. Good work, sir. So, Ryan, you've talked about green for envy, green for cuckolding, if it's your hat. And I thought there was some interesting universals there, green for nature. But is, is green for go a universal? Did you look that up? Yeah, because we spoke about in the episode, didn't we? We said that maybe blue should be go, or I said that blue should be go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that made me take a look at traffic lights. And uh, you mentioned that William Potts, he was the inventor of the red, amber, green traffic light in 1920. In Michigan, I think it was. Yeah, yep, you definitely said that. Stand by it? I do. You sure? I'm standing right now, right by it, with my arm around it, saying, you're a good fact. Paul, take note, because I looked into that and I discovered that uh, there's actually some uncertainty over the credit of first inventor of the red, amber, green traffic light. Because while it's true he did create the light system in 1920, he didn't actually patent his invention until 1924, one year after another inventor, Garrett Morgan, patented his system in 1923. I stand by the earlier invention of Mr. Potts. I stand with him. We stand united, Potts and I. Paul, does that count? No. It's something like that. It would be the legal definition. <laughs> Just remember that for the verdict. But uh, yeah, so Garrett... <laughs> Sabotage. <laughs> You're going to get a good grade anyway, would you matter? Uh, so Garrett Morgan, right? He was an African-American inventor. He was based in Cleveland, Ohio, and he patented the three-light system after witnessing a horrific accident at an intersection where he saw several people die. He acquired three patents for it, one in the United States, one in Great Britain, and one in Canada, and he eventually sold the rights to General Electric for 40,000 US dollars. That's around half a million dollars today. I am famously the worst negotiator in the world and probably would have taken a small cash value <laughs> and a cup of tea for my invention. So. <laughs> he was also the inventor of the gas mask. He created it for underground rescue, but it became the precursor to the ones they used during World War One. Well, this dude takes health and safety very seriously, doesn't he? Yeah, but that being said, he also invented a hair tonic and a comb for straightening hair. So <laughs> covered a lot of ground, didn't he? I like to think he's, th- he's thought, well, the world is safer now. I can move myself to the challenges of frizziness of hair. What I really wanted to do all along. <laughs> Maybe you only got the frizzy hair from wearing the gas mask. Maybe, yes. He's put his gas mask on and he's gone, oh, I need to do something about this, this side effect. And he's invented the tonic. It all comes together. So, yeah, I wanted to share the story with everyone of the Bougainville Independence, which is a very active and live thing going on in Papua New Guinea today. So Bougainville is an island that's part of Papua New Guinea. It started out as part of the German Solomon Islands, actually. It's kind of geographically part of the Solomon Island archipelago. And on this island, there was a copper mine that opened in 1972, which my brilliantly clever green link, because copper turns green as it oxidizes. Mm. So this mine, it generated 12% of Papua New Guinea's GDP and was over 4 
45% at one point of the nation's export revenue. Now, this was a big producing mine, but it was this big open cast copper mine, right? So that created a load of environmental issues on the island. They said it poisoned the Jabra River. They were just reports of birth defects the flying fox on the island went extinct so you know the, the people of the island paid a big price to have this big mine on it and then to add insult to injury the the png government actually owned 20 percent. it was a 20 percent shareholder in the mine so it got 20 percent of the profit and it allocated to the people of the bougainville island just somewhere between half and one and a quarter percent of the total profit so they were experiencing all of the toxic results of this mining and getting only a tiny fraction of the the income that was generated so they were unhappy about this, as you can imagine. Yeah, quite right. Yeah, so this this breaks out into actual violent conflict. In 1988, the Bougainville Revolutionary Army was uh, increased their activity. I think it was formed slightly before that. But basically, it became a civil war over there. The government tries to put down the civil war. And at one point, in order to do this, they decide they're going to bring in actual mercenaries. This company <laughs> called Sandline, which was mercenaries of, I think they were South African and British. I'm surprised uh, they didn't bring British policemen over, because that would have been a load of coppers. Oh my lord! <laughs> oh, come on, that's that's pretty good. You just lost your goodwill from earlier, there, Ryan. I think. <laughs> but anyway, the, the Sandline people never actually arrive because the news of the plan to bring in mercenaries gets leaked across the world. All the international community totally condemn this. It actually brings down the government of Papua New Guinea. They end up with a new government. They very nearly have a, an actual coup, in fact. But they get a new government, and uh, eventually there's a peace treaty. They bring uh, international peacekeepers to monitor the, the security of the island. And uh, in 2019, though, to bring us to the 21st century. They had a referendum for independence in Bougainville. 87% of the people turned out to vote. Over 98% voted in favour of independence. It was a non-binding vote, so now it has to go through this process of becoming law. But they say that they're hoping no earlier than 2025, but no later than 2027, that Bougainville Island will actually become an independent state. Well, good for them. That's breaking news from Papua New Guinea. So it's not going to join the Solomon Islands then? I didn't see anything that suggested that. I think the assumption is... Well, well, this is kind of strange as well because the assumption you would think is they think their mine is going to be their source of revenue but actually the mine itself closed in 1989 now i assume that was because of the violence that was breaking out and i guess there must presumably still be copper in the mine because otherwise they're really taking a bold move in becoming an independent island 98 percent seems an awful lot are we certain that that's not rigged i because th- we've come across results of that nature before and they've usually been because there's a strong arm government who've gone that was a good result for us wasn't it no <laughs> yeah. I, I looked into that because i had exactly the same mm. feeling and I, nobody's contested the result of the election uh, from what i could make out it seemed to be considered a, a fair result okay wow. so if, if you were going to rig an election and you didn't want it to be seen to be rigged what sort of score would you fix it to get i think i'd go into the 70s i'd not go over 80 though that seems fishy doesn't it i i would think about just shy of three quarters i think yeah i'd agree with that about 74 percent. but actually it's kind of a good thing that the result was so marked in this island in bougainville because one of the commentaries i read or a number of them suggested that you know even if the political will in papua new guinea wasn't there to grant them the independence the result was so marked that actually they kind of have to do something about it now wow good for them
So green is one of the hardest colours to replicate. Plant dyes were the original colours that people had access to. Uh, they would eventually turn brown after a while, so they didn't use that very much. The ancient Egyptians used uh, malachite, but found that it turned black after a while. And the ancient Greeks just sort of gave up entirely on it. They, their art palette was pretty much yellow, red, black and white. <laughs> That's what they stuck to. Uh, in fact, green continues to be a difficult colour to reproduce artificially. Um, it's particularly hazardous, apparently, to produce green dye. And all current methods are, ironically, damaging to the environment and ecologically irresponsible. So how about that? So green is not green. No, green is not green, but it is green. But it's not. But that doesn't stop people loving it. In fact, green is the second most favourite colour in the world after blue. But one famous person who really loved the colour green was Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> I know where this is going. So in particular, the French emperor loved one special shade of yellowish green called Scheele's Green, which was named after Carl Wilhelm Scheele. He was a German chemist who discovered that the right combination of oxygen and chlorine would make a green pigment. And he discovered better than that, it was cheap and easy to produce. And by the 1770s, it replaced copper carbonate, green dye, as the most popular colour of the day. It made its way into artificial flowers, candles, toys, clothing, soap, beauty products, foods, and wallpaper. And Napoleon was so fond of the wallpaper that while he was under house arrest on the tropical island of St. Helena, he insisted that the walls of the home be covered in it. And the reason being that he thought that the colour so resembled intense lighting that it would keep rats, bugs, and other pests from entering the house. It probably did stop bugs and things coming in, but I think you'll tell us the reason why. So the only problem with it, and with Shields' green wallpaper, is that when it becomes damp or mouldy, you know, as it's likely to do in a temperate climate like St. Helena, uh, the pigment in the colour metabolises and it releases arsenic-laden vapour. And basically, Napoleon died after five years on the island, and while it's unclear exactly what caused his death, we do know that he suffered similar symptoms to those who worked in Shields Green factories. He was vomiting blackish liquid, he was suffering hideous lesions, he had ulcers, gastric distress, he had heart disease and even cancer. In 1980, a scrap of the wallpaper was found in a family heirloom by a woman in Norfolk in England, and she sent it to be tested by a chemist who found that the paper contained 0.12 grams of arsenic per square metre, which is twice the amount of arsenic deemed to be hazardous. Eight of them would be a gram, so there'd be a couple of grams of this stuff on the walls. And a gram is what, like a teaspoon? Probably a little bit bigger than a teaspoon, I reckon. Amazing. Uh, in 2008, an Italian team tested strands of of Napoleon's hair, and they concluded that the samples contained roughly 100 times the arsenic levels of a healthy person. So there you go. Almost proof that the uh, Emperor of France, Terror of Europe, Napoleon Bonaparte, was killed by wallpaper. <laughs> I'm reminded of what they claimed to be Oscar Wilde's last words, which was something along the lines of, either that wallpaper goes or I do. <laughs> Yeah. Sci scientific aside, um, there is a chemical compound called arsol. <laughs> <laughs> What would you use that for? <laughs> I honestly don't know. So if you combine arsenic with potassium permanganate, do you get arsake? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 
Okay, well, here we are. We have come to the end of the line. Pete, it's time for you to step into the dock and prepare to face the people's judge. I'm ready. Judge Dursley, are you ready to give your verdict? Yes, I am. Then will the defendant please rise? Absolutely. Your Honour, as usual, may we start proceedings by first asking for your verdict on factual content. I think for once, the factual content was pretty high, given given that most of the con- factual content came first hand. Score! I thought it was particularly fact-packed. It was crammed. Crammed with them. Yes, I agree. So, I am going to give... B+. Wow, that's a strong start, Petey. I'll take that. Okay, and then may I ask for your verdict on entertainment value? Ah, oh, I, I, I'm afraid I don't think your skits were quite up to it this time. Would it help if I said that it was Ryan who came up with the anthropologist joke? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I groaned at that, but then I came up with an even worse one. What have you got? Lay it on us. Well, it was it was like a, a, a tiny mathematician. Yeah. Who would be an anthropologist? Oh, I, I mean niche. I'll give you that. <laughs> What's a topologist? Someone who studies sort of shapes and the relationship of shapes and transformations. Yep, you're right. That is worse than mine. (laughs) (laughs) But for the two people who would have got it, they'd have loved it, in fairness. (laughs) But... I'm afraid, although I accept the fact that it was Ryan's joke, you let it in. So, I'm afraid I can only give... C+. C+, that's still good. Don't mind that. Yeah, still better than most of my episodes, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that leads us to the mysterious, the unknowing, the Dursley (laughs) factor. Did this tickle your bones? It surprises me to say... It did tickle me. Uh, Papua New Guinea is one of those countries that has always been quite fascinating. I think, A, the location, B, sort of the shape of it even. Yeah, it's a whole other way of life, isn't it? I'm not sure it's a place to go. With your big brain, you'd be gobbled up before you knew it. They could make judge fudge out of your brain. (laughs) (laughs) So give us a grade. I would give an A minus. Wow. Cracker. And that leads us directly to the final verdict. But before the judge passes his ruling, Peter, you have an opportunity now to enter a plea. If you choose to do so, please make that plea now. I feel like I can only make things worse, so I'm saying nothing. <laughs> Your Honour, the defendant stands before you with his mouth zipped shut tight. Have you reached a verdict? Yes, I have. In which case, I would ask most respectfully for your ruling. I would give for Green in Papua New Guinea in the 21st century... B+. Whoa! I'll take that. I'm very happy with that. Thank you very much, Judge. Good work as ever. You're such a good judge. Okay, well, look, there you go. That is our show for this week. If you'd like to get in touch about well any of the things that we've talked about on this show or just to say hello, you can do that by reaching out to us on social media through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com. That's right. We'd love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. That's right. And one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Your recommendation really goes a long way 
way to bring the show to new listeners. Uh, now, if you're on Mastodon, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, the social medias, you can find us at HHE Podcast. And if you subscribe to those, you'll get an alert whenever we post any trivia tidbits, news, photos, and uh, any extra content that we do. That's right. And we're going to be back again soon with our next episode, episode 71, Wood in the Star Wars Galaxy during the High Republic. Yeah, Ryan, you've got a, an uphill journey here, haven't you, to convince the judge that Star Wars is a good use of his time. <laughs> it's an A-grade waiting to happen, you'll see. Maybe in a galaxy far, far away, but not in this one. <laughs> May the force be with me. But in the meantime, a huge thank you to the judge himself. Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. And that is it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... All right, so just one last thing that I wanted to talk about. So during the history section, you know you mentioned briefly about the Kokoda Track campaign during World War II. Yeah, this is where the Australian soldiers were outnumbered and outgunned by the Japanese. Yes, a plucky band of Australian warriors. That's right. So there is this one particular tactic that the Australian soldiers deployed. Basically, when low on ammunition, the Australians would knock down Japanese airplanes, their fighter jets, using tree branches. (laughs) It must have been big trees then. (laughs) So basically, they would head to where the Japanese had cut out some makeshift runways into the forest. And when the plane was just taking off or coming in to land, the Aussies would rush out of the tree line, swinging branches over their heads and try to take down the plane while it flew overhead. Right? (laughs) They'd sometimes soak the branches in water or oil first to, I guess, make them heavier. And they'd uh, sometimes attach rocks or other heavy objects to it to sort of increase the force of the impact as they were hitting the plane. But it did actually work. The Australians managed to bring down a number of Japanese planes just by waving branches at them. Oh man, can you imagine having to report that to your boss? Did you get shot down? Not exactly. (laughs) Or was it a Spitfire, a Mischersmith? No, it was an Aussie with a stick. (laughs) I think it's all that cricket practice they have. Exactly, yeah. KMNO4.